Welcome to Church 213. The gospel message has the power to change lives, but so often we find ourselves a little timid to share it. This teaching by Pastor Ryan equips us with ways to be more comfortable, confident, and excited to share the gospel. Thanks for listening. As, uh, as, as I was describing the, uh, the best steak, the perfect steak last week, um, as I was reading that description of the savory steak, I was thinking, I wonder how many people that, that uh, description is going to grab. Like, you know, how many people are going to leave here going, I didn't know that I needed a steak in my life, but, but I think I do. And I thought maybe it'd catch two or three of you. I was wrong. Thirteen of you, <laughs> it caught thirteen. One, one person actually sent me a picture of their steak. And, uh, and so that, uh, that really plays right into the message this morning because... Uh, what it proved was what we already know, and is this. Our words have power, don't they? What, what we say, the power of, of words and the power of adjectives and, and, the, and the power of, of just simple descriptions, man, it, it can really capture heart. It, 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 can, it can make a difference. It can make a difference. And, um, and so last week was, was kind of the focus on onward maturity. And what we did was... We just kind of worked through Hebrews, Hebrews 5, and the challenge was making this point, is that telling of the Lord, telling that you savor the Savior is evidence that you're alive. The fact that, um, the fact that you can share some good news is, is evidence that, that there's life. It's a sign of life. I heard about these three pastors who met up for their weekly accountability group. And, uh, and as they went around, they began to tell their struggles. And the first pastor said, hey, guys, don't tell my wife, but I am way over my head in debt. It's kind of quiet. Next pastor said, well, if my church knew I was a compulsive gambler, they'd fire me. And third pastor, he said, fellas, I hate to admit it, but I struggle to gossip. And I can't wait to get out of here. <laughs> Our words, Right. Our words have power. Let me tell you this. The empty tomb is not gossip. Amen. It is not gossip. It is the gospel. And since Jesus is the authoritative priest and what? King. Okay. Y'all were here last week. Priest and what? King. Since he is priest and king. Since God is in flesh. And since God is, is liberator from the curse of death. It is important. That we're living lives that reflect that awe-empowering and inspiring story. But not that we just live life that reflects it. But, but, we, but we use confident and we use compassionate words that articulate that powerful story. Are y'all with me? So the title of the message is, is just simple. It's sharing faith without fear. A practical guide to the gospel. And if you look on your sermon guide, there's quite a few blanks right there because I want to really put some things in your hand this morning. Some tools, some practical tools that you can use. These are tools that I use. I'm not, I, I haven't perfected them, but I, but I, but I use them to, to sharpen my own um, skills of sharing the gospel. But if you're honest, like, like I hope that you are, things get weird when you bring up Jesus in a conversation, don't they? Things get awkward. 
Most of the time, Christians are better at talking about other things than they are about the hope that the empty tomb brings. We can talk about just about anything. But here's some statistics that I, that I, that I poured for you just to let you know the power of personal evangelism. Statistically, when you, when you are sharing the gospel with somebody, statistically, how do people come to hear the message of Jesus? 2% is an advertising. 2%. And a lot of churches use a lot of effort to advertise things, but really when you boil that down, you're, it's just a 2% effort. Pastors in the pulpit, 6%. Organized outreach, 6%. And so you, you may say, Pastor, that, that's 14%. What in the world could be... The other, you know, 83%. What could be that? It's this. It's personal evangelism. It's just sharing your faith with a friend. It's doing life together with one another. The largest majority of the people who are going to admit, I don't want you to miss this, and confess and believe is a result of somebody who compassionately, courageously told them about what Jesus means to them. Our words have power, don't they? I want you to think about who told you. Just go back and pull from your mind's eye. Who told you? Hey, lift your hand if you just say, I remember the group of people that kind of told me. There may be somebody right here in this room. This guy right here told me. Where's he at? Raise your hand. Right there, raise your hand. That guy told me. I was 12 years old on a coon hunt. I went looking for a coon. Jesus was looking for me. I've never been the same. Never been the same. Somebody told me. Here's the point I'm trying to make. That any believer who takes seriously the command to share Christ will face some hesitation. Because there's a lot at stake. Don't you believe for a minute that the enemy is not threatened when we begin to share the gospel. Listen, we have an adversary who wants to fearfully snuff out you sharing the gospel with someone else. It's the greatest threat to the kingdom of darkness is the kingdom of light. But 2 Timothy 1.7 tells us that God doesn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. And so the beautiful thing about this is, is, is we don't have to give in to the lies of the enemy who's, who is saying things like this. Say, don't you bring up Jesus. It'll make things awkward. It'll ruin a relationship. It will start an argument. I submit to you, church, not if it's done his way. Not if it's, not if it's, done, not if it's done with compassion and with gentleness and with love. And so what I want to put on the floor this morning, the question for us is this. How do we practically and effectively share our faith without fear? How do we, how do we, how do we get to the fourth core value here at Church 213, where doctrine is our bedrock, unity is our glue, ethics is our power, and what? Jesus is our king. How do we, how do we actually start sharing that sort of thing? What are some practical guides to that? So I'm going to point out, we're going to, we're going to work through um, often a passage that's just read around Easter. Y'all, Easter's coming. 
March 31st, we're going to fill this place up. I'm going to tell you something, but don't tell anybody else, okay? Let me share a little secret with you. Um, the organizers of the sunrise service at Stone Mountain Park have invited us to lead worship for the event on top of the mountain for this Easter sunrise service. Isn't that awesome? And uh, Pastor Dom, did you know that? He did. He did know that. So, uh, so he, he's putting together a team, and, uh, and we're going to be hopefully inviting all of us to meet our worship team on the top of Stone Mountain at the sunrise service, and then we'll all rush back here for Easter service. Y'all good with that? That's going to be awesome. And the, 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 the trolley's running, so you don't have to go the night before and hike up and all that stuff. Uh, but more details to come. But one of, the, one of the verses that we're going to read this morning is often read just around the Easter story. But, but it's so powerful for us practically as we're talking about how to share the gospel without fear. So let's stand together. Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Hey, we got some ushers in the back. If you need a copy of God's Word, um, maybe you have one, but you didn't bring it today. Maybe you don't have one, but you'd like a Bible to take home. You just lift your hand. Anybody in the house say, Pastor, I need a Bible. We'll put one in your hand. It's okay if you need one. That's why we've got them, I promise. It's a safe place. Anybody say, Pastor, I need a Bible. Amen. Mark 16, starting in verse 1, says this. When the Sabbath was over... Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. and They were saying to one another, who's going to roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb for us? And looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robe sitting at the right side. And they were alarmed. Don't be, a, don't, don't be alarmed, he told them. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. Hey, see the place where they put him. But go. And you tell his disciples and Peter. Man, that's a story right in itself right there. And Peter. A man who was living defeated, Jesus was alive. Amen. And he's going ahead of you into Galilee. And you will see him there just as he told you. And they went out and they ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. They were caught up in the awe, but they had to go and tell just as Jesus had told them. You guys can be seated. Just... As he said, sharing faith without fear if Jesus is our king. Here's what I want you to know. Here's some things you can hang on to. Sharing without fear flows from a personal encounter with Christ. Sharing without fear flows from where, church? It flows from a personal encounter with Christ. Look at verse 1 and 2. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, bought spices so that they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, 
They went to the tomb at sunrise. Let me unpack this for you. Um, first, here's what I want you to see. That these ladies were, were winding their way through the path of this garden at first light because they had come to finish what was started on Friday. They, they had come to, to, to be a part of the preparing the Lord for the burial. See, our, our, um, <clears throat> the way that we use time is different than the way the Jewish culture used time. Jews began their new day at sundown rather than at midnight like us. And so the Sabbath which was the last day of the week, would have begun Friday at sundown and ended Saturday at sundown. That's how you get the three days. It wasn't a full 72 hours because we're reading into that with American context. But in Jewish culture, even a piece of a day was considered a whole day. And so the burial happened really on Friday, right before sun went down. So it counted a whole day. So it's Friday, so it's Saturday, and it's a little piece of Sunday, which is three days. Are y'all with me? It's right there. The Bible is in context absolutely accurate. It always is. It's infallible, inerrant truth of God. And so we can trust it. And so it was against Jewish law to do any work on that Saturday, which happened at sundown on Friday. Y'all with me? So there was haste because Christ was crucified and then he was taken down and, and the sun was going down. So as the Son of Man was going into the ground... Sabbath, which was also in this particular, um, this particular Saturday, was a special Saturday because it was also the Sabbath, which was part of the, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was the first feast that the Jews would participate in as they look back until the Passover lamb in Egypt. Man, this whole thing's lining up. Almost, almost like God has a plan. Amen. The Lamb of God on the Sabbath was put into the tomb, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so there was haste there. They couldn't do any work. They couldn't be around a dead body on the Sabbath. And so they would have, these ladies would have waited until Saturday at sundown after the Sabbath was over to go back to the tomb and finish what had happened on, on Friday. But listen, it was dark, and who wants to walk around in a garden cemetery in the dark? I used to live next to a cemetery as a kid. Creepy! So these ladies, they were going to run through the cemetery at night. But they couldn't wait to get to their Lord. So at first light, they'd waited all they could wait. Are y'all with me? And so back to the garden they went. And they expected Jesus to be there. We see this in the text. Who's going to roll the stone away? They, they expected Jesus to still be there because in their mind, he was no doubt dead because they knew him. They had walked with him. They were disciples of him. They saw him die at the cross. John 19 tells us that at least two of them watched Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus receive the body from Pilate and prepare it and wrap it. They were there. It was personal to them. And because Jewish people didn't embalm their dead, they would, they would pour oils and they would cover the body with spices to control the smell of death. But they had already done some of that on Friday. And so the question is, why are they going back? And I, want, I, want, I, want you, I don't want you to miss it. I want you to catch this. This is why. This is important for us to see as we go. They were going back to apply their personal spices to their king. 
They wanted to make sure the job was done right themselves. They had waited as long as they could. And so while it was still a little bit dark on the third day, they wanted one last opportunity to serve their master. What a beautiful picture, isn't it? Christ meant too much to let somebody else do the work for them. Is Jesse, Jesse, in, yeah, Jesse, Jesse and Whitney are getting married Friday. Jesse, are you, are you going to forfeit the chance and let somebody else have that first dance? No, he's he going to fight you for that first dance. Right? He's not going to. Hey, Courtney. Courtney and Joe. Joe, would you have allowed someone else to get down on a knee and propose to Courtney on your behalf? Negative, Negative Ghost Rider. Not going to happen. Josh, would you have let somebody else pay for Jennifer's ring? Don't answer that. Don't, a- don't answer that. Don't answer that. Here's what I'm saying. No way. No way. You know, he paid for it with his hard-earned cash. Okay? No way. Why? Because love means too much to leave it in the hands of somebody else. Amen? And so, church, here's what I want you to know. If you've been truly saved by grace through faith, felt the flames of hell and heard the tender voice of the Savior calling you to saving faith. If you have tasted and you have seen the goodness of God, you're going to be stingy with your witness. Meaning, you're not going to leave it up to somebody else. You're going to do it yourself. Because it's just too important to let somebody else handle it for you. Look at verse 6. The angel said, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, and he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go and tell the disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee. And you'll see him there just like he told you he was going to be. Y'all write this down, church. The tomb wasn't empty generally. It was empty personally. It was empty personally. It was empty personally. These ladies came to the tomb with spices in their hands. And not just that, but some anguish in their heart. They approached this situation with heartbreak. They were broken over it. But that didn't stop them from from finishing what God had called them to do. But here's what I want you to know. It's in this place of hopelessness and despair. Right in that place of hopelessness and despair. That the messenger of God says. Ladies you've been focusing on the wrong things. You got to stop it. Death does not live here anymore. Hallelujah. So you need to go and tell about the life that you found. You go and you tell about the life that you found. And I want you to know that's a word for somebody this morning. Because there's somebody that's made a mistake. There's somebody that's made a mess on purpose. Forbidden fruits make the best jams, don't they? Somebody that's willingly sinned against a holy God and they can't get past it. Because your eyes are focused on what was lost, what the locusts have taken. Well, let me tell you this morning, you might have lost some traction, but God has not lost control. And in repentance, you're free because death and shame have no hold on you anymore. I'm telling you, start looking for life again, church. Start 
Start looking for life again. Admit what you've done before the Lord and leave that junk in the tomb. And go look for life. I've heard it said like this. Satan trying to hurt me by bringing up my past is like trying to rob my old house. I don't live there anymore. Y'all, the resurrection is not simply just a part of the gospel. It's the centerpiece of divine intervention. It's the climax of his atoning work. Because life sealed the promise The promise that death is not the end. There had to be a resurrection. Because it's when the the payment for my sin and your sin cleared the bank of heaven. That's That's what Corinthians tells us. 1 Corinthians 15 says this. Man, this is so good. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? How can you deny it? Because if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. The Christian worldview and faith hinges on the empty tomb. And there's been enemies of God that has been trying to erase the facts of the empty tomb since the day it happened. You look in the New Testament, we're going to lie and say someone stole his body. Maybe it's the swoon theory. Maybe he was just knocked out for a while. Maybe he wasn't really dead. All that stuff is lies from the pit of hell. He absolutely was raised to the dead. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ. Whom he did not raise up. If in fact the dead were not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. So it goes on. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also been perished. If we put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anybody else. We have been given a a promise of victory. Because if Christ ain't alive, there is no hope of us getting out of here alive. But we know that the tomb is empty. And what it says is one day I will receive a perfect resurrected body so that I can have a personal access to Christ's presence forever. And so as we stand Before the Lord. And he says, how do you plea? Here's how I plea. I plead the empty tomb of Jesus. That's how we plead. And that's a story worth sharing. Amen. D.T. Wright put it like this. He said, sharing the gospel is like this. It's just one beggar trying to tell another beggar where to get some bread. And I, I I want you to know there's. There's sticky in your salvation story. The sticky in the glue is your testimony. It's when you share it, what Christ has done. And I'm going to tell you, what is a testimony without a test, right? What is wisdom without challenges? And when you go through the fire and God forges your testimony, man, it just is like a, it's just like a flower that blooms and it gives off the aroma for other people to see and taste the goodness of God in your life. So when you face those things, it's not a... 
It's not a woe is me, Christ, God, why are you doing this to me? It is how are you shaping me through this so that I can be a minister to somebody else? Man, what would a testimony be without a test? And I'm going to tell you, there's, there is not anything that you go through that all of us won't go through in some shape, form, or fashion. And so, man, you're going through something, that's just platforming your testimony so that you can speak into the life of somebody else. One beggar trying to tell another beggar where, what? Just where to find some bread. And so, the question is, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a personal thing, but how do we actually do it? Because that's easy preaching hard living. How, what are some practical things that we can share fear with people? It's this. Y'all write this down. Sharing without fear flows with a specific plan. With a specific plan. Verse 3. And then they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb for us. They're thinking about specifics as they're approaching the, 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 the practical part of how we're going to get in there. How, what, are, what are steps that we have to take to see Jesus? And looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Listen, let me tell you, the angel didn't have to roll that stone away to let Jesus out. Okay? He hangs the earth on nothing. Spoke out the stars and, and lit them on fire. So not, not a, a stone was not going to hold him in there. The stone was rolled away so that the people with finite minds can look inside of there and they can see. It's to, it's to, it's to give us access to the majesty of God. Verse 7 says, go and... You tell the disciples and you tell Peter he's going ahead of you in the Galilee. There's planning, there's intentionality, and you'll see him there just like he told you. And so for us, how do we get that gospel conversation going? How do we move from, from hey, how's your mom and them, to the point that you begin to share in Christ with somebody? I want to introduce you to this acronym. It's, uh, it's what I use. It's, I didn't come up with it, but I use it. It's just simply forward, F-O-R-D. And here's the forward approach. Here's the way that you start that conversation. The F stands for family. The F stands for family. So a great way to get a gospel conversation started. One, you know where you're going, right? So how do you actually start? It's just talking about a person's family. Talking about a person's family is typically a safe way to start building a connection. And especially if, if that, that family has children. Because if you can ease the tension of the kids, then you can have an open conversation with, with the parents. And so a little trick that I use sometimes is, is if I see a parent and I'm trying to get to know their family, I'll ask the kid, I'm like, hey, how old are you? And they'll be like, I'm 11. And I'll say, that is exactly how old I was when I was your age. And then I'll say, hey, I need to, let me share your secret. I was born at a very early age. And so were you. Right? You're, you're just getting those conversations going. Or I'll, I'll say, how did you get so cool in just 11 years? You know? And you can see the tension just begin to break. You start building community. And then you can move to the parents. And so sometimes I'll say things like, you know, the most dangerous hood you'll ever go through, mom and dad. And they're like, what? I'm like, parenthood. They're like, amen to that. 
But you just start having these conversations and, and you start reading out the family and the situations. And what you're doing is you're just looking for ways to keep the conversation going. Are y'all with me? Because family has a way of easing the awkwardness of why is this stranger talking to me? And then the O is for occupation. So start building rapport with your family and, and then let the conversation guide from there. Just relax in that. Start talking about, hey, people like to talk about what they do. People like to talk about their, their jobs and their, and their passions and, and you know, what, what, they're, what they're doing for a paycheck. And, and if, they, if they like it, they like to talk about it. But here's also what I found. If people don't like what they do for a paycheck, they often like to talk about that even more. So either way, it's a win-win when you start talking about occupation, start talking about vocations. But either way, you're building connections. And so I use these moments and I encourage you, smile, laugh, fist bump, high five, pats on the back, handshakes. Are y'all with me? It just breaks down those barriers. And I promise you, listen, it's not going to be long until, until you find common ground and that, that, that conversation begins to relax. So you've talked about their family. Talked about their occupation. You're like, Pastor, okay, that's the F and the, and the O. How do, we, how do we start to kind of move that conversation to the R, which stands for, uh, which stands for relationships? And here's the key. People can tell three things about us. It's been statistically proven. People can tell things about me and things about you within the first 15 minutes. Sometimes the first 10. Right? And so we have to be careful how that perception, because often perception is reality. So you guys, write this, you guys write this down. They can tell if we care about them. Y'all know this is true. You know if someone is just talking to you or talking at you. You got to know people that, that they care about. You guys write this down. Lostness doesn't care how much you know about God unless it can tell how much you care about them. There's a story told of a hardened criminal. He was awaiting execution. Several high-powered and high-profile pastors and evangelists continued to go to death row and try to witness to him, but his heart was so hard. They just, they just threw their hands up and said, there's no hope. Because typically they would focus on what a sinner he was and, and how he needed salvation, and his heart just continued to get harder and harder. But then this janitor came to see him. And this janitor was just happened to go through death row that day and he was just cleaning the halls and, and he sat right down next to him and he said, hey, me and you, we in a terrible fix, ain't we? And that conversation opened. And this janitor was a believer. And he began to share Christ with him and that man began to weep and he led him to Jesus right there on death row. What a beautiful story that, hey, you just got to know that you, you care about one another. And this tells a lot of us about how do we are to approach people. How are we to approach somebody that you feel God's tugging your heart to try to share the gospel? And you know that, you know that tug, like this is it. You know, this is, this is the moment. How do we approach it? You guys write down. We approach it with prayer. You can't share the gospel unless you pray over it, unless you're in a spirit of prayer. Because it is a spiritual battle. We are asking God 
to, to, to do a spiritual work to a heart that's a heart of stone. And, and you're begging God in a spirit of prayer to, to put a seed of faith there. And we can't do it. It's got to be Him that does it. Prayer keeps the focus on the goodness of God. It's, it's the cool water in the heat of what's at stake. And the reason that I, that I like to, to go into sharing the gospel prayerfully is because it, it keeps me grounded knowing that, that it's a work of God unless any man should boast. I can't save somebody. I can't make that seed land in the soft ground. That's not what I'm called to do. I'm called to share his goodness and, and expect God for, for, the, for, the, for the increase. And so that's the second part. Not only do we approach it with prayer, but we have to approach it with an attitude of expectancy. If you ain't expecting God to do something, listen, you're not going to see him do it typically. You go into that moment. Just believe that you're going to make a connection because there are no coincidences with God. That's why having gospel conversations is so amazing because you start realizing, man, we have mutual friends. We have mutual interests. Man, what you're going through, I'm going through. And God begins to weave and God begins to work. A perfect situation that begins to, to soften that heart. And then you begin to feel that God has provided that moment. He's been working in the middle of it for our good and for His glory. And so listen, this is, a, this, is, this is a prayer to pray. I promise if you'll pray it, you'll begin to see that heart of prayer and that, that approach of expectancy to pay off when you get up in the morning and you just say, Lord, send me someone I can share my story with today. You don't have to force it. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He just wants obedience, not perfection. So it's not like you have to share it every single day, and, and for somehow you're going to be outside the will of God if you lay your head on the pillow at night, and you're like, oh man, I didn't share the gospel. So you jump up and get on Facebook, and you start doing a little live. That's not what it's about. It's about getting up in the morning and saying, God, I want to approach this day prayerfully, and I want to approach this day expectantly. And, and I want you to give me an opportunity. And I promise, if you have that heart and that person comes into your realm of influence, your conscience will perk up and you'll say, there he is. It's the one you prayed about this morning. Game time, right? And then you let that conversation guide. How are we to approach it? We are to approach by being sensitive to the Spirit. See, the more you go with the gospel, the more you will listen to the Holy Spirit's prompting. And the more you realize you don't have to rush the conversation. Hey, just ask questions and just listen and just be tender and be alert and listen, church. If you don't hear anything else I say today, it's this. Just be real. Be the same person that they see having these conversations that they see in the break room. The same, the same person that's sharing the gospel is the same person that they see online or, or they see on, you know, on, on, on a friend get-together. They see on the ball field or they, wherever they see in the classroom. When you have the conversation with them, it's the same realness that they see in your life. I'm telling you, there's power in consistency. There's power in consistency. And the goal, what is the goal? The goal is to connect so you can share your story. 
And that takes the pressure off because I'm going to be honest with you, there's, there's times where I feel like I completely butchered it. I've told you all the story of, of the gas station attendant who every time I'd go in there to fuel up our church vehicle, I felt that prompting and say, that's the guy. Go witness to him. Go witness to him. And so I, there was two of them behind the counter one day, and one guy was checking me out, you know, and, 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 the, and he's taking my money. And the other guy had his back turned. But it was this guy that God had prompted me, and he had his back to me. So here's what I said. I just said, hey, have you ever thought about how you're going to die? <laughs> he spun around so fast, he probably thought, this is it. <laughs> They're going to rob me right now. As soon as I said it, I'm like, oh, my goodness. And he turns around, he looks at me, he goes, I don't know, maybe eaten by a bear? That's what he said. And I said, man, God bless you. I'll see you next week. I just had to walk out. <laughs> but here's the thing. God knew my heart. <laughs> God knew my heart. I said, Lord, I butchered that. But somehow it's maybe something in my countenance and, and just maybe do something with my mess. Bless this mess, please. That's, that's, that's the story. Here, here's what I want you to write, write down. Write this down. We only fail in going when we fail to go. When we fail to go. Look at verse 7. That's what the angel said to him. But what? Go. Just go. And you tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. I'm so thankful that when I butcher those opportunities that God's already ahead of me. He's already waiting for the increase. He's out there. And so R stands for relationships. And these ladies were told to go with a specific message, the, the message of Jesus and what they personally experienced. And so when you're sharing the gospel with somebody you just met, the good news, this is often the most dif the difficult transition to make. You've talked about their family. You've talked about the occupation. You're starting to build those relationships. You're honest. You're prayerful. You're, you're, uh, you're real. You're expecting God to do something. And so how do we go from the F to the O to the R? How do we, how do we look for ways to tell what God's doing in your life as proof of a personal relationship? And here's the beautiful thing about it. Getting personal it's the burden of proof that you can argue with the power of a transformed life. You can, you can argue theology. You can argue Calvinistic theology. You can argue Arminian theology. You can argue historical theology, biblical theology. You, you, know, you, can, you, can argue, you can argue those things, but you cannot argue with another person that's trying to explain to you what God has done in their life. And they have a story to tell, and people love a good story. You can't argue... With the power of a transformed life. That's why consistency is so important. Because it's, a, it's, it's, it's like a billboard that God is actually moving and can still change the heart. A transformed life. And think about, think about butterf butterflies and caterpillars. Butterflies are caterpillars that have been transformed. A butterfly though... Is much different than a caterpillar. A, cal a caterpillar is, is uh, they're ugly and they're slow and they're creepy and they're slimy. I don't know about you, but I, I like to use them as, as fish bait. Some of you may just want to squish them. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. 
But if you think about this, but once that caterpillar converts to a butterfly, all of a, uh, all of a sudden, something brand new is born. Something that was old and ugly, something that was rejected, something that deserved to be put on a hook, now begins to change. And that, that process of change, sometimes it can be, if you've ever watched one, sometimes kids do these at the science projects. It's uncomfortable to watch. It's, it's ooey, it's gooey, it's, it's, it's inconvenient. And for a while, it looks like, it looks like Things are getting worse before they've gotten better. If you watch a caterpillar turn into a butterfly, there's a moment there where you think, oh, this is not good. There's no way anything can come back from that. That's because, listen, don't miss this, something is changing on the inside. Amen. And after that cocooning process is over and that shell flits open, all of a sudden that thing that used to be grounded can fly. And that thing that used to be a, a parasite now pollinates. Something beautiful has come out of something that was ugly. Listen, I want you to know this. A butterfly isn't just a fixed up caterpillar. It is a transformed thing. And when you're saved, we're not just a better version of our old self. That's humanistic philosophy. That's just behavior modification. You just don't somehow wake up and go, I think I'm going to be a, a better version of myself. I'm going, to live, I'm going to live a better. Today is the day that I live a better life. It sells books, but it'll send you to hell. What the scripture tells us is that when we get saved, it's, it's now us in Christ and it's Christ in us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 starts off with therefore. The word therefore is referring back to, to verse 14 and 16. And here's what Paul's saying. Paul's telling us that as believers who have died with Christ, that we no longer live for ourselves. And so our lives are no longer worldly. They're, they're now spiritual. Our focus is on spiritual things. And then when we fall into worldly things, our spirit convicts us. That's, that's evidence that, hey, we are no longer to live our lives as we once were. We are to live our lives as new creation. We just have this new desire in us. And our death is, is that the old sin nature which was nailed to the cross with Christ, it was also, listen, buried with him. Are y'all with me? Don't, I don't want to lose you. And just as he was raised up by the Father, so are we are to raise to walk in newness of life. And y'all, the personal testimony is the perfect tool to use to move into a gospel conversation, isn't it? Because it's a captivating story about something, listen, that was selfish, but is now sacrificial. When you start using your, just like that butterfly, when you start using your testimony, it's a captivating story of something that was prideful and lustful and empty, that is now meek and is now pure and is now joyful. And so how do you approach the subject? Because you don't want to be abrasive, you don't want to be pushy, you don't want to force it. You know, what if you say the wrong thing and they shut down? One of the things I do at a restaurant often is, um, is when I'm getting ready to pray, I'll, I'll, I'll wait till the server comes and I'll say, hey, well, our family's about to pray over our meal and I always try to get their name or his name or whoever. 
And I say, hey, we're going to pray. Is there something I can pray with you about? Can, I, can you want to pray with us? And sometimes, they, you know, they stand back and like, no, but they're, they're, never once have I, sit, have I had anyone walk away and say, oh, I'll come back after you finish. They usually are respectful enough to at least stand there and listen to me pray. And then you can begin to pray about the gospel and about the thanksgiving of the food, and it just opens that conversation. Oftentimes, they want you to pray with them. It's a really easy opportunity because what you're doing is you're pulling that person into your life. And it opens the opportunity to share about what God's doing in your life and it could lead some questions about their relationship with Christ. Here's a few questions I like to ask to turn the conversation to Jesus. I like to ask this question. Hey, when you attend church, where do you attend? Man, that is a loaded question. But I hold all the cards, right? I know where I'm going. That's the way I kind of word it. When you attend church, where do you attend? So two things are going to happen. They say, oh, I attend church here. And you can say, oh, what do you like about it? Or they say, I really don't go to church. Well, there you go. You've been missing. And you have an opportunity. We have those little bringer, be a bringer cards out there. They're, 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 they're out there all the time. It's just a little card that talks about our church. And I encourage you guys to pick them up. Have them handy. It's a great, a very easy way to start this conversation. Say, let me, let me testify about what God's doing in my heart, in our church. Use, use somebody else in here to your advantage. Man, let me tell you what God did last week at our church. This guy or this girl or, or this teenager. You don't really have to talk about you. You can talk about the goodness of God by talking about somebody else, right? You just talk about what happened at the chief Super Bowl party, Right? You talk about what God's doing in your heart. So take those cards and give it out. Another question I ask is, would you say you have a personal relationship with Jesus or are you still in the process? That's a loaded question too. All about the words. And here's a, here's a PR nugget. There may be people in your life that God has been prompting you to witness to and you've just been neglecting it and now it would, it would feel kind of awkward to go back to them. Are y'all with me? So how do you handle that? Now that it would be just weird. How, how, do you go, how do you go about sharing your testimony with somebody that you do life with? Well, here's my suggestion. During invitation, this morning, ask the Lord to forgive you for not being the witness that he's called you to be. And for being disobedient to the Great Commission. Acknowledge that to the Lord. And then you have another really good new excuse to have a conversation with that person. And you go to them as soon as possible. And you say, hey, God has put you on my heart and I need to apologize because of something I've not done. And use that apology as an on-ramp to the gospel. It softens the conversation. Are y'all with me? It gives a really good excuse to have that new conversation Hey, you can say, hey, this, this, today or this past Sunday, I recommitted my witness to the Lord and, and, and our church did. And, and I want to share the greatest thing that's ever happened to me with you. And I'm sorry that I haven't shared this with you before. Do you have a few minutes? And I promise you, man, the door would be right there. And then you can go right into your testimony. And then at that point, you can call for a decision. F-O-R-D. Family, occupation, relationship, and then call for a decision. The gospel presentation, y'all, is incomplete unless there's a call for a decision. 
Not every conversation will lead to that point. But you ought to at least be headed that way. Here's what I found that's evidence that we're under spiritual attack when we share the gospel. And I could be talking to people about anything, especially if it's non-spiritual. But it always seems like the moment that I get to the call of decision, there's an interruption. Isn't there? Somebody's going to call. They'll get a text. A dog will start barking. A kid will start crying. A server will walk up. Somebody drops a plate. It's there. It's there. And so you just have to handle those things. You just have to be prayerful and be consistent. So, But if you get to the point where you share your testimony, then you can just simply ask them about the decision that they've made or the decision that maybe they've, they've not made. And here's what I found. It's, it's very unlikely that they're going to get mad because you've already built that rapport with them. They know you love them. You care about them. You're interested in them. You've made their kids laugh. You've high-fived them. You've talked about... You, have, you, you know mutual friends. So I don't want you to buy that lie. In fact, here, here's the thing. It's very likely... God has already prepared their heart in such a way that they would jump at a chance to share Christ. Man, we have a, we have a tag team here. It's a, prayer, it's a team of prayer tent people, and they set, they set a prayer tent up all over Newton County, and they just share the gospel. And uh, David's over that. Raise your hand, David. David Coons is over that tag team. He's a tag team leader. And I remember David said something recently. He said, when you're talking about fishing, he said, we got fish just jump in the boat. We don't have to go anywhere. They come to us because they're hungry for it. They're hungry for it. They're waiting, waiting with anticipation. And so there's questions like, hey, do you know for certain that, that you'll have eternal life, that you'll go to heaven when your time on earth is done? Everybody understands that life is short. Don't be, I'm saying don't be afraid to ask that question. It's a hard question, but it may be the most important question you ever ask anybody. Questions like, suppose you were standing before God right now and you were asked why you should be in heaven. What do you think you would say? Is there any reason why you wouldn't be willing to receive God's gift of eternal life? It's okay to ask that question. When I've asked that question, often I have people to say, no, there is no reason. They're so ready. Questions like, are you willing to turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus right now? Sometimes I go, no. I hear I get no. Sometimes I get, yeah. Sometimes I get, I don't know. But you have built such a reputation with them and rapport with them, you just let that conversation lead. Here's what I want you to know. Scripture doesn't give a prescribed prayer, so there is no formula. If it's real to you and you recognize the Spirit of God making it real to them, God will guide you. God will lead you into the paths of righteousness. He will open those doors. He'll make it easy. It's not about the words you recite. It's about the attitude of the will. Not about a box to check. So you do life with them. And so in way of preparation, how do you lead to, how do you lead to those decisions? Here's what I want you to know. This is, this is it. Know your testimony. Know your testimony. Practice it. I call it the stairway to heaven elevator pitch. Hey, if you could sum down, if you could sum up what God's done in your life in three or four minutes, practice that. Practice makes what? 
No, it doesn't. It makes progress. It makes progress. Practice will make perfect. Got to be a perfect husband by now, wouldn't it? That ain't happening. But I'm only better today than I was yesterday. It makes progress. And so the more that you write it down and the more that you, that you practice it, the easier it becomes. And I'm, I'm going to promise I promise you this. The more that you think about your own testimony, the more special it becomes. Think about it. Write it out. Three or four minutes. And then share your testimony often. Man, share it with your, your spouse. Share it with your kids. Parents, have you ever shared your testimony with your kids? What a great place to practice. Hey, let me tell you what God's done with me. And Pastor Ryan told me to practice it. So use me. I don't care. Practice it. Man, what a special thing to sit around the dinner table and share your testimonies with one another. That would be sweet. A little acronym. It's, it's APP. It's admit. How do you share your testimony? It's admit past lostness. Provide the solution. Praise him for what's now. It's, it's where I was, what God did, and where I am now. You can kind of write those things out in three minutes, three or four minutes. And the second thing is this. Not only do we need to know our testimony, but you need to be able to swing your sword. Because it's these words that get to a place that nothing else will. So you have to know your New Testament. You have to know your Bible. One of the most used approaches I use is, is just some, some, uh, some scriptures in Romans. Six or seven places that I like to go. And, um, a great feature of this is the fact that it gets people into the word to, to see what the scripture says themselves. So when I, when I share my testimony and call for a decision, I like people to read it. And I have them underlined. I have them marked. And I have a road there where we go and so, say, hey, read this. Hey, read this. Hey, read this. And, and as, they, as they not only hear what God's done in my life, don't miss it now. Don't pack up and miss it. Not only do they hear what God's done in my life, but they can hear what God's word says itself. And they hear it. They hear themselves read it. And it just gets its way down in their heart. And it's a beautiful thing. So here's just a few scriptures. I put them right there. You can, you can mark these and you can use these. Write them on a card, a note card. Romans 1.16 is the one that simply says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Where's the power of, of salvation? Romans 3.10, there's none right with God, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the standard of God. We've missed the target. Romans 6.23, for the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated his love to us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10, 8 and 9, we confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. For it is the mouth that we receive righteousness and is with baptism, with our actions that we receive salvation. It's such a picture there. And then why in the world would we be telling something like that to somebody? Was 1 John 5... Where God's word says that these things are written so that you may know. That's why God gave us his written word. So that we may know him 
and we may have a relationship with him, and we may love him, and we may tell others about what we've experienced. God gave it to us. And so what a beautiful scripture to read to somebody that, that God wants them to know who they are made to be. And so how do we share it without fear? Well, we, it's personal. We have a plan. We work through the Ford acronym. You know your testimony, and you know your New Testament. You work at it. The Bible tells us we are to discipline ourselves for godliness. Very little happens without discipline. Very little progress is made without discipline. It happens in our physical bodies. It happens with our emotional state. It happens with our family. It happens on the job site. So why wouldn't we think that also applied to how we share the gospel? It takes effort. It takes planning. The Bible says whatever we do, we are to do it heartily unto the Lord. Whether we eat or whether we drink, do it for the glory of the Lord. Including preparing ourselves to share our faith. Here's the most beautiful thing to consider for me. Is there might be somebody out there so hungry for the gospel that they're just waiting for you to share it. So desperate for where life has them that they're just simply ready for you to be obedient. I'll read a little story as we close out. Come on, praise team. Um, there's some resources out on the table that I encourage you from last week. If you're going to grow up in maturity, there's just some things that I would recommend that you get for you, for your family, or some kids' devos out there. But this is another little book out of, out of my office library. It was written in 1934. It's called Miracles in a Doctor's Life. And so this doctor who was a believer uh, wrote this little book of all the encounters that he had with people it's just miraculous. It's just such stories of, of divine intervention. I got it. All he was was available. And, uh, and this story popped in my head. I had to dig this little book out as I was preparing this message. But the story is called The Spirit Used a Sewed Finger. It goes like this true story. This, this is from the doctor's perspective. He says, among the many duties which I had in a large factory that was being the factory physician, attending to the sickness and accidents which might occur among the employees. And quite a few women were employed in this plant being periodically occupied with the operating of sewing machines. And every safeguard was placed on these machines to prevent accidents. But in spite of this, some employees would be careless and let the hand become entangled in the belt or in the wheels. One morning as I sat at my desk, preparing the mail for quotations and distribution in the various desks, one of the factory girls presented herself with a bleeding finger. And I asked her to be seated by my emergency operating table while I examined the wound and prepared the dressings. And find that, finding that it was only a superficial wound of the skin, I inquired, how did this happen? You must have been quite careless or else your machine is out of order. And she excused herself by saying that perhaps she had been a little careless and was sorry for the accident. So I dressed the wound and I reproved her for being so careless and urged her to exercise more carefulness in the future. I then phoned the engineer on the floor and asked him to have one of the mechanics examine the machine. 
And he reported saying that the machine seemed to be in perfect condition. And after that, the incident was dismissed from my mind. After about 10 days, the same young lady appeared again at my desk with the same finger torn much worse than on the previous occasion. The finger needed more careful attention. The wound was deeper and of more serious character. I carefully dressed it and repaired it and again raised the question as to why she should permit this danger. And again, she professed ignorance and said that she was sorry for permitting it to happen. I reprimanded her more forcefully than on the former occasion and told her that if she injured again, I'd have to request the foreman to dismiss her from service. As carelessness made her presence undesirable. And after she left the office, I phoned the foreman of the floor and asked him to make a personal investigation of her machine to ascertain if there was any fault in the equipment. He reported that machine was in perfect order. Again, I dismissed the matter from my mind. Another 10 days passed. When to my great astonishment, this lady presented herself to me a third time, accompanied by a sympathizing operator who helped her to the office. She fell into the chair, rather overcome with the pain, and I soon observed that it was the same finger which she had injured on the two previous occasions. And this injury was really serious. The needle had penetrated the finger, piercing the bone, and had broken off inside the bone. The only way to remove it was by splintering the finger down from the end, for the needle was embedded too firmly in the bone to be extracted with forceps. I proceeded at once to do that which was necessary for the finger. And at the same time, I told her that we could no longer keep her on as an employee. It seemed to me that she was just entirely too careless and it was running too great a risk to have her as an employee. And having finished the dressing, I said to her quite earnestly, The scripture says, Thou knowest not what the day bring forth. This is a serious accident. You may suffer from blood poisoning. You don't know what complications may follow. Are you ready to meet God? Have you arranged with the Lord for your trip to eternity? Tell me, has this ever been considered by you seriously? And the question stirred her heart quite deeply. She leaned over on the table, gazed at me earnestly and said, Doctor, you have asked me a question that has troubled me greatly for three weeks. I'm not ready to die. I don't have peace with God and this is the third time I've come into your office that you might tell me how to be saved. I was not careless at the machine. There is nothing wrong with the machine. I deliberately placed my finger under the needle the first time thinking that while you were dressing it, you might talk to me about Jesus. I went away from your desk disappointed. You said nothing to me about salvation and I felt that you didn't care for my soul. I spent most of that day crying because of my disappointment. And as the days went by, my soul troubled deep and I decided again to place my finger under the needle. But this time to cause a deeper wound so that you would take more time in dressing and so perhaps think about my soul. And again, you let me leave your office with no help for my heart. My distress was deeper than ever. I was so disappointed and heartbroken to think that you would not help me to be saved that I cried most of the time since then. I've not been able to eat nor sleep. 
This morning, she continued, I came to work with the determination to injure myself so severely that she would have to give me more time than perhaps would think of my soul. And I deliberately put my finger under that needle. I was willing to suffer and run the risk of losing my hand in my job if only I could get you to talk with me about the salvation of my soul. He says, you can well imagine how my heart was condemned as I listened to a heart cry for this lost soul. What a deep sorrow filled my heart as I was so forcefully reminded of the fact that I had been out of touch with the Lord both of those days when this girl came to my office. He says, you will write in your statement, you did come see me and I did let you leave with no word for your heart. I do ask my Lord to forgive me and now that you've come again, I'm happy to tell you of the Savior who came to seek and to save that which was lost. And I took my Bible and together we read Romans 4, 7. Blessed are those whose inquiries are forgiven, iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. There's a lovely Lord who can give you this blessing today. And I know this is what your heart wants. And we knelt together at the side of the medicine cabinet. And there she told the Savior that she believed his word and accepted his forgiveness. And tears of joy now flowed from, from tears of sorrow. Her soul was at rest. She and the Lord Jesus had met and her soul was saved. What a neat little story. Amen. Let's stand together. And so here's my call to us this morning. When you stand before the living God and give an account to how you used your time that he has given you on earth. By what merit are you going to stand? And if you can't say with confidence, I plead Jesus as my savior. Today is the day of your salvation. And I can promise you there have been people praying for you this week that you would step out and you would come forward and you would place your faith and confidence in the Lord Jesus and you would follow him in baptism. You don't have a saving relationship with Christ. Don't wait. You don't have to go out and get a needle in the finger. I'm telling you, Jesus wants to know you as Lord and Savior. And if there's somebody on your heart that you have that you have been ignoring in, in the discipleship and the witnessing, just simply ask the Lord to forgive you. Step into that obedience and share the gospel this week. Hey, maybe it's putting your testimony on Facebook. That'd be a great place to put your testimony, right? Let's use it. Let's take what the enemy means for evil and let's use it for good. Man, post your story. Maybe type it up and send it to somebody. Maybe share it with your kids tonight before bed. Whatever God wants you to do, I, I'm, just, I'm begging you to, to step out and make that possible. The question that I like to leave is this. What's God calling you to do? And how much longer are you going to put it off before you do it? Amen, church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for saving us. God, thank you for drawing us. God, thank you for making us what we are not. For granting us what we have not. And for teaching us what we know not. So that we can push back darkness. So we can live in the marvelous light of our salvation, Lord. 
Move upon your people this morning and we will give you praise. God, thank you that you still seek and save that which was lost. God, thank you for saving me. Weary, lonely soul. Putting my feet on the solid rock. Being this chief cornerstone of my life. God, I pray that your forgiveness would wash over for those in here, Lord, that have that have made mistakes, Lord, that doesn't define them when they repent and they lay those mistakes and those fumbles and stumbles at your feet, Lord, that you cast them away and you clear our conscience and you restore back again. God, I pray the next few minutes will be a moment of worship, restoration, repentance, apologies, Lord, so that we would be made whole we will walk in truth, a truth that sets us free in all things. I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.